Okay. Um, we're going to be in 1 John, so turn to 1 John. If you go to the very end of the Bible, you'll find Revelation and turn left. You'll get to Jude and then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're going to be in 1 John, and we're going to be in chapter 2. I thought it'd be good to stay with the author um, since Doke is preaching through the Gospel of John. So I'm going to read verses 12 through 14. That's going to be our primary text for today. And this is a message John is writing to believers. So to understand that, and the title of the message being Growing into Christ-likeness will assume that we're all on a growth path. And John makes the path pretty clear here in these passages. So starting in verse 12, I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let me pray for us. Father, I know that uh, everyone has come here. They've had conversations on the way here. They're thinking about what they'll do after here. And so I'm just going to pause. I'm going to let there be some quiet in the room. And in that moment, just move all that away. Not so you can hear me, but so you can hear the Lord. So I just want you to take a moment and put yourself in a place of listening. Father, thank you for the Apostle John, for his life, for his ministry, for his work, for his writing. It endures forever, and we get the benefit of looking at that today. So as we talk about this process of growing into Christ-likeness, I pray that um, through all that I say, every person in this room, um, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would be challenged, um, convicted, encouraged, by one of those things that um, pursued will draw them into greater Christ-likeness. And we ask that um, so that your name would be glorified through our lives. And we ask that in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So a little bit of background. This Apostle John, um, loud, proud, boisterous, ambitious, um, bothersome, (laughs) with his older brother James called the Sons of Thunder. So there's one occasion uh, Jesus was walking through a town, Samaritan town, and uh, the Samaritans worshipped their God on their mount. Jesus was walking through to go to Jerusalem, and they knew this, and they didn't appreciate the Jew style of worship as compared to theirs, and it was a little contentious. So they rejected Christ, just full out didn't want anything to do with him, didn't want to hear anything he had to say. It was like, just move on through. So what does John do? Here's the quote. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? This is John. Uh, If you'll recall, John was on the road with the Lord and was arguing with his brother about who should sit on the right and left. Uh, The mom was kind of in the middle of that conversation. That might tell you a bit of where he got that from. Uh, But that's John. Loud, proud, boisterous when we meet john here john is not loud and proud not for himself he's now loud and proud for christ and the message that he's going to give us today through what he wrote in these three letters is to encourage churches to stay the course to press on in the midst of a lot of persecution but to do what they have to do to conform to the image of christ so that they would continue this message he's the last apostle alive So now this is the group of churches that are going to carry the message forward. Um, If you follow the life of John, uh, he's very often found sitting very near Christ. It's no longer so he has a prominent position. It's literally so he can hear every word. That's how close he wanted to be to Christ. So not a single word would be missed. And so he camped himself there so he could hear from Christ. 
So you could then embody that, which we get the benefit of through his writing. Um, as I said, John's the last apostle alive at this stage. He's in Ephesus. Uh, he is the leader over the churches in what's called Asia Minor. It's modern-day Turkey. And so these three letters are designed to speak back into those churches to encourage them because there was a lot of persecution going on. The first thing he wrote, he wrote the gospel, then these three letters, and then Revelation. His gospel, which Doak is in, it's really unique as compared to the other three gospels. When we look at them, Matthew presents Christ as kind of king, king and savior. Um, Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. And so what Matthew was writing about was the coming of this king who came in a way that the world was really not expecting him to come. But that's what the whole message of Matthew is, is to understand Christ as our king and savior. Mark presents Christ from the perspective of a servant. He came as king, but he came to serve. He came to demonstrate how we should live as slaves to Christ, loving those around us. Isaiah said it this way as he prophesied in Chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall reign and be lifted up. He shall be exalted. Exalted above man. And then Luke. Luke presents Christ from another unique perspective as man. Fully God, but fully man. Why? So we could identify with him. He lived life as a man. So in this process, we get a lot of teaching in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, full of parables, full of different ways that we can learn how to live this Christian life. John doesn't use parables. There's no parables in John. John gives us a biographical sketch of the Lord as God so we can identify, so we can pursue. Um, Isaiah in chapter 40, verse 9 says, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, and herald the news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, and herald the good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And that's what John is teaching. In the times when I share my faith with somebody and they're receptive to it, I will very often take them to the Gospel of John, first place. Because in that, they meet God through the person of Christ. But they meet God, and they get everything they need to understand who he is so they can develop a relationship with him. John wrote these three letters that we're going to look at the first one to these churches to remind them, actually to encourage them. Pursue the faith, even through difficult circumstances. The, the church was going through a lot of persecution, and it was actually increasing. So when you read these letters, you hear a pastor's heart. You hear someone who is just sitting down and having a conversation. And that was John's style of teaching. He was encouraging them to press on, to remember the fundamentals of the faith that he had imparted to them. Joy, holiness, eternal security, those three are all throughout the three letters John writes. They still apply today. Because it's a living word. Whatever you're going through, joy can overcome sadness. Holiness can overcome sin. Eternal security overcomes our doubts. And that's exactly the message John was giving these churches is to remain under God's word, to rely on his attributes while this persecution is taking place. Eusebius is a uh, historian. Uh, along with Josephus. And they were alive at the time of Christ and they give us almost a newspaper edition of what was going on at the time. And um, the Roman emperor at that time was a guy named Domitian. And this was not a very good person. Okay? And Eusebius writes about him. He says, With terrible cruelty, Domitian put to death without trial great numbers of men at Rome who were distinguished by family or career and without cause banished many other notables and confiscated their property. He wanted no competition. Anyone who would be looked at as somewhat of a leader, he removed. Eusebius goes on to write, finally he showed himself Nero's successor in hostility toward God. Now if you know anything about Nero, 
Um, one of the things he's known for, he liked plush gardens where he lived. And one of the things that he liked to do was to have lights in the garden. Well, he used Christians and would put them on a pole and light them. And that was the lighting for his garden. This is the persecution that Nero gave. So Domitian was kind of right behind him in that respect. It says he ordered the execution of everyone in David's line and banished all known leaders of the Christian faith. So this is when John was sent to the Isle of Patmos. Get rid of him, put him off the Isle. Wasn't in David's line, move him over to the side. But this is where John penned the revelation. This is where we find our hope, our eternal hope. It's Christ's return. And it's where we'll spend eternity with him. So what Satan would have intended for evil, God meant for good. And gave us an incredible letter from this Apostle John as he was on this island of Patmos. History further tells us that when Domitian died, the Roman Senate decreed that all of his honors were to be annulled as if he didn't exist. Because they didn't appreciate him. He was just the emperor, so you couldn't argue with him at that point. Everybody who had been banished, Roman and Christian, were welcomed back and they were given their property back. This is when John returns from Patmos and now he's back in Ephesus and this is where he's writing. This loud, proud John, it says that he was carried to the churches because he was so old, so weak, so frail. Now you've got a humble servant who through life and through relationship with Christ had gone through this progression that we're going to look at today from being a child to a young man in the faith to a spiritual father. And there isn't anybody in this room that can't follow that same path. And that's what we're called to. That's what we're going to talk about. So we can understand the context. Turn back with me just chapter 2, but verse 1. We're going to read the first six verses. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but for also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So consider verse 1. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Is that perfection? No. We're not perfect till we're in Christ's presence. So it's not talking about being sinless. What it is referencing is we should be sinning less. So it's not perfection. It's a movement towards a sinless life. Look at verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. It cannot be clearer than that. The progression of faith involves an action with the word of God. When we're in the word of God and we're reading it and obeying it, we're putting ourselves in a position for growth. Verse 6 Walk in the same way in which he walked. This is obedience. This is obedience. This is saying, I read your word. I've interacted with it. Now, how do you want me to conform my life so I live to it? Um, I grew up in a home, actually had a pastor as a father, and he lived his life wanting to do what he wanted to do and found a passage to justify it. It's not how we should live. We take the word of God as our standard and we live up to it. We don't bring it to us the way we want to live. We conform to that. And that's the obedience process. Verses, verse 7. He starts off with beloved. So he's addressing us. He's addressing believers. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not 
and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What John is telling us here in these passages 7 to 11 is a reflection of the first six. If we're walking truly in these first six verses, the result is we're no longer walking in darkness, which means there's no room for judgment. We're walking in the light. There is no judgment. There's love. John, later in his life, from this loud, boisterous, boisterous guy, his nickname at the end of his life was the Apostle of Love. Because this so impacted his life, he recognized that judgment, which we see in his early life, where should I sit? Should I bring fire down? It was all about judgment. Over time, God just chiseled that away. And there was this humility that sat inside of him that said, it's not about me. It's really more about you. Verses 12 to 14, our text. I'll read it again. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you are overcoming the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. I served 12 years in ministry with Gene Getz. Um, If you know him and his ministry, it's all built around a family model because we are in the family of God. I mean, you're a family here because there's a husband, a wife, and a child. If you're just a child here, you've got a mother and a father somewhere, okay? That's a family. We also have a family here at the church. We have elders. Those are our spiritual parents at church. They are the ones who can discipline us. They're the ones that should be able to talk to us in a way that a parent talks to a child because here we are the children of the family of God. Um, John mentions this in verse 7. He says, Beloved, he's addressing brothers and sisters in Christ, family members. In the text that we're looking at, John actually gives us another view of the family from young child or young child to young man to adult. If you're a true believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're an heir with Christ. You've been adopted into God's family forever. Hold your place and turn with me to Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. So Galatians chapter 4, I'm going to begin with the first verse. This is really an important passage to, to hear. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir to God. When you surrender yourself, your self-focused everything is about me self, and place your faith in God, you are no longer a slave to yourself, but to God, because you are now a son. You're an heir, which promises a forever place in his family. Rest in that. Um, Think about your own family. There's dads in the room. If anybody came to do something harmful to your family, would you not stand in the way? Would you not do whatever it took to defend your family? That's our father. That's our daddy. And we can rest in that. We should realize there is nothing that can happen to us that he can't manage. Nothing. I'm going to pause here for a moment. I just want you to bow your head.
Father, there may be some in this room that don't know you as Abba Father, as their daddy. In this moment, through the moving of your Holy Spirit, would you prompt their heart to surrender their self-will to you? To pray this simple prayer, God, I acknowledge you. I acknowledge you as God and accept you as my Savior. That your death on the cross covered my sin and brought me into your family. And I choose to now live for you. Take away my selfish desires. Replace them with yours. And Father, for those of us that are in relationship with you, would you examine our hearts in these next moments? Reveal to us anything that we are allowing to be in between us. And would you lovingly, gently move in our hearts that we would set that thing aside so we can see you more clearly and pursue you more confidently? We submit to you. We choose to live to you, live for you, for your glory. Amen. Thank you. Um, I'm not a date setter in terms of you have to remember when and where, um, but for me, January 10, 1978. I'm in a bathroom in a house in Chicago. It's actually the home my wife's family lived in. Um, I went to work for her dad and I lived with them until I really started liking his daughter and he moved me to Detroit. Um, uh, I was getting ready for work and they had been communicating the gospel to me and I'm half shaven and it was that light bulb that goes off over your head that says now and I got on my knees and I gave my life to my Lord and Savior Um, and in as perfect imperfect way as I could said whatever you can redeem because I was not the child you wanted your daughter to bring home. We'll cover that a little bit more later. Um, But God took that, and he redeemed my life, and he began to change me. Um, If in the beginning of that prayer, you ask God to be a part of his family, don't leave here today without talking to somebody. Um, That happened in the first service. Glorious time. Don't leave. This is a family. And this is a family that can help you to realize how the family works. If you were the second part of the prayer, I'm going to say a lot this morning. I want you to take one thing and do something about it so that you are more conformed to the life of Christ. So back to our text. Let's read it. Um, He addresses little children. Verses 12 and 13. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then he goes on further and he says, I write to you children because you know the Father. The first reference in in verse 12 literally interprets born one of God. So that's the transaction. You're a born one of God. In verse 13, what he's referencing is um, a person needing instruction. So you move from salvation to somebody who now needs instruction. So literally what John is referencing here, a child is a born one of God needing instruction. They're not yet ready to feed themselves. But he tells us there's a progression to being a young man. And this is gender neutral, so it's youth. It's someone young in the faith who is beginning to pursue faith. Verse 13 says, I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. In verse 14, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This is referencing the transition from simply being born, one needing instruction to pursuing pursuing God, and now you're actually feeding yourself. By being in the word of God and choosing to conform your life to model Christ, you're less likely to fall to the temptations of Satan. Not because you're stronger, but because he is in you. This is referred to as sanctification, which is what we're going to be talking about mostly today. Here's a good definition. The decreasing frequency of a pattern of sin in your life and the increasing frequency of a pattern of holiness in your life. Um, R.C. did not know everything I was going to talk about today. I gave him a title of the message. 
What's one of the songs we sang? More of me and less of you. More of you and less of me. Yeah, that's this. That's that pathway. As we're pursuing Christ, he becomes more, I become less. Then he addresses fathers. Verse 13, I am writing to you fathers because you know him. That word is an intimate word. It's not a knowledge word as if I know who someone is. It's I know the person. Verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. This is the person who has submitted their life to Christ, is continually pursuing their knowledge of God through his word, and is transitioned beyond reading and applying the word, and they are now in a deep and intimate relationship with the author. They're no longer just reading pages on a, on a reading words on a page. They're relating with the father, with the author of the page. It's a moment-by-moment, life-on-life relationship. This is the person that says, it's not only keep the word and you will truly live, but keep the word as one who can't live without it. And this is the process God calls us to, to move from a child to a youth to an adult. And pretty interestingly, when you meet adults, and there's adults at this church, spiritual adults, they would never say that they are an adult. They would always say, I'm still a youth. Because that's the process. And when you're there, you're just continuing to be in the word. You're asking God, what do you mean by what you say? And how do you want me to conform so I look like that? That's the whole process we're called to. Notice the focus of the word in all three of these personas. The word is heard. That's a child who knows God. Who he is, that he's God. The young man, the word is believed and applied because they're pursuing the word, the attributes of God and how to conform to them. The word is lived. This is a father. He's communing with God through the word. It's a life of intimate relationship. I'm going to pause here and recognize God's plan. God's plan is that we become more Christ-like. It's the title of the message. What I'm not referring to is be a better version of you. I'm asking you to be a better reflection of him. He ordained, and that word means a very specific intentional decision. God ordained that you would be his children, so he saved you. God ordained that you would spend eternity with him. I want you to hear this really clearly. God ordained that you would become Christ-like. That's everything that we're called to do, and he did it by giving us this. That's what we're going to talk about. How do we use this to pursue him? This is not a chronological process. Um, This is not an age issue. You're not more mature in Christ because you're an older person. I know many senior adults who are immature in Christ. I know many youth who are very mature in Christ. This is not chronological-like, chronological like the door frame in your house where you've got these lines that designate how a child is growing. That's not what this is referencing. Um, It's referencing a pursuit of Christ-likeness. It's a principled life. This this book is full of principles. That if we pursue and model our life after them, we will become a better reflection of him. Sanctification by definition, increasing separation from sin. It's the process of being in the word, seeking to understand what it means by what it says, and in obedience, applying it to our daily living. It is not the perfection of our faith, but it should be the direction of our faith. This daily pursuit of wanting to know him more. Not just know more, know him more. Paul in Colossians 1.10 states it this way, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The process is unmistakable. Be in the word, pursue the depths, conform your life to it. When you do that, and you begin to move into this father phase, you will find yourself repeating it. Because it's a lifelong learning process. It doesn't happen in a moment. It's a life process. 
So how do we do it? Are there clear steps? There's a lot of input, but are there clear steps? Is it an easy formula? No, it only happens through a deep conviction of need. It's like anything in your life that you want to change. Whether it's food-related, gadget-related, media-related, addiction-related, whatever. Having a good intention to overcome that thing may not do it. But being intentional about overcoming it just might. Walking out of here every Sunday morning with a good intention to apply the message might work. Walking out applying one thing that you heard and doing something about it is going to change your life. That's what John's calling us to. Our topic is how to grow into Christ-likeness. So Christ-likeness is the objective. We need to develop an intentional process for ourselves that will help us to get there. Biblical principle is something we must follow if we are to know Christ. And there's many ways to do that. In Scripture, they're called spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are things that aren't necessarily just practices that we repeat. They're practices that we do to put us in a position of hearing Christ. That's it. It's not to say, look what we're doing. It's to say, how can I hear you clearer? So by definition, spiritual pneumaticos. What it means is something kind of ethereal. It's not carnal. It's not solid. It's something more spiritual. Something that regenerates. Discipline comes from the word guzmano, which we get gymnasium from. So think about it. Exercise. Work it out. Put it into practice. So when you look at the definition of spiritual disciplines, It's the working out of Christ-likeness. That's it. So I read a lot of people in this area. Uh, When I was on staff with Gene, the ministry I started was the Center for Church-Based Training, and our primary focus was discipleship. Well, these are clearly things people do when they're in that process to keep them in that process. So I read a lot of people who write pretty authoritatively about spiritual disciplines. Um, It's not about knowing God more. It's about keeping us in a path of growth. So I'm going to read off a list for you. And this probably isn't exhaustive, but it's a compilation of about 12 different authors who spend a lot of time in this area of spiritual disciplines. And I'm going to hit on some of the things that you've personally done. I may mention something that you haven't done. It may be something that you walk out of here saying, I need to consult this and say, what does that look like in my life? So let me just read the list. And these are all just practices that keep us moving in our Christian faith. Celebration. I've already done that this morning. Chastity. Confession. Evangelism. Faith. Family. Fasting. Fellowship. Generosity. Guidance. Holiness. Hope. Journaling. I always pause there because I'm always convicted to journal because my kids say, Dad, you say some really good stuff, but I just don't journal. Doke tries to get me to journal, and I still don't journal. Love. Love for the Lord. Love for the Word. Meditation. Personal maturity. Prayer. Reflection. Sacrifice. Servanthood, service, silence, simplicity, solitude, study, submission, suffering. It's quite a list. And we've all been through these at different phases of our growth in Christ. But these are the things that if we're disciplined and moving toward, keep us in a place where we can hear Christ. So are these just simple activities that we can say, hey, let's put it on the list and start pursuing it? They change from time to time based on your growth, based on your maturity, or are they really something more? Uh, John MacArthur says it this way, the pursuit of spiritual disciplines does not begin with making a list. 
but with self-examination before the Lord. Growing into Christ's likeness is first about being, not doing. That comes next. It's being in a position to be taught. When we know that, we begin to put that into practice, which is our doing. It's recognizing God as God and me as a servant. So here's some principles. We're going to rifle through four of these. Spiritual growth is always dependent on our vital connection with God. That's where it starts. It's like if you put a list of priorities, how do I get closer to God? The first four out of five will be be in the Word. Exodus 21 through 6, and I'm going to paraphrase this. I'm not reading it. Um, I'm the Lord your God. No other gods. No carved images. No bowing down to any other. I am jealous. I'm a jealous God. Showing steadfast love to those who love me and keep my commandments. We must submit our life to him. Set our self-life aside and pursue him because he is our necessary food. This is the vital connection. We, we should miss it if we go a day without it. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, I must take care above all that I cultivate communion with Christ. For, through, for though that can never be the basis of my peace, mark that, yet it will be the channel of it. It's putting ourselves in a position so we can hear him. Second principle, spiritual disciplines are the result of spiritual desire. Desire. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow. If you're a mother, pause. Think back. Birth of a child. You're in a hospital. You're in a bedroom. You've just birthed a child. That baby is screaming. What's it screaming for? It's mother's milk. And when it gets it, satisfied. Silence. Because it has what it needs. In essence, this is a word picture of us that our heart should yearn for God's word like a baby needs milk. That it is dependent on it. That we can't live without it. Tozer said it this way, I want deliberately to encourage a mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ. He waits to be wanted. Too bad with many of us, he waits so long, so very long in vain. Good intention versus being intentional. Third point, spiritual disciplines help us effectively run the race and focus our spiritual goals. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 said, run to obtain the prize. Don't run aimlessly. Don't box the air. Discipline your body and keep it under control so you will not become disqualified. You don't achieve Christ-likeness with good intentions. You've heard me say that a couple of times. Gene Getz writes about this. Today is in the first century. Many people are confused about spiritual maturity, what it is and how to get there. Many are trying all kinds of push-button formulas for achieving instant maturity, dying to self, living by faith, being filled with the Spirit. Along with these go the Bible reading and prayer formulas. There is truth in nearly all of these. But basic to all this is the process Paul spelled out so clearly. Becoming a spiritually mature Christian involves goal setting, motivation, and action. Christians who are immature in certain aspects of their lives must deal with that particular problem by first of all isolating it in light of Scripture. Then they must translate that problem into a goal striving to change that part of their lives while at the same time seeking God's help through faith, prayer, and meditation on the Word of God. There is no magical push-button approach to becoming a mature Christian. Becoming like Christ is a lifelong process. Finally, 
Spiritual disciplines strip away the non-essentials. Hebrews 12.1 says, Lay aside every weight and sin, run with endurance the race. Thomas Akempis said, We must make diligent search both within and without to leave nothing inordinate unreformed in us as fully as our frailty permits. And if you cannot do this continually because of your frailty, at least see that you do it once in the day, evening or morning. In the morning, you should make a good purpose for the day. At night, you should examine diligently how you have behaved yourself in the word, in deed, and in thought. For in them, we often offend God and others. This is a really key point for me personally. Um, I tend to have men come to me who have some kind of an addiction, whether it's a drug or an alcohol or a sex addiction. Um, and I always used to wonder why. And, and then God tapped me on the shoulder and he said, because that's what I took you out of. Um, I told you I was not the guy you wanted your daughter to bring home. I wasn't. I was not living at all to the glory of Christ until he got a hold of me in that bathroom that one morning. And then he changed everything. I want you to hear this. And, and we've all had things that we've said, I need to change this. Um, I literally cannot remember intentionally deciding to stop doing those things. But as I poured myself into this word, his desires became my desires. I didn't have to stop doing them because something else replaced it that was better. When I'm working with men, I say, you don't have enough strength in yourself to stop that activity. It is only until you put your faith in something bigger, better, and begin to pursue that, that now those things don't matter anymore. And that's what John is saying here. We need to strip away the non-essentials, the things that are blocking us from having this full relationship with Christ. Lamentations 3.40 says this, let us test and examine our ways in return to the Lord. Set aside anything you for everything him. He won't settle for less, and you shouldn't either. It's exactly what he wants from us. So spiritual disciplines begin with desire, a desire to know God more. They place us in a position so we can grow into Christ-likeness, and they remove our desires for his, effectively leaving no room for ourselves and our non-essentials. Because at the end of the day, we're not that great. He is. So how do we do it practically? I call this whole life development. Whole life development. Head, heart, hands. In the head, it's the transmission of God's word. Be in the word. You've heard it a few times. Be in the word. Transition that word to your heart so it changes who you are. It's the process of biblical training to a Christ-like lifestyle. Very often, you don't have to tell people you're doing that. They see that. They hear that. They observe that. Finally, hands. This is the pursuit of the character of Christ through spiritual practices. It's the guardrails we build into our life. It's the spiritual disciplines that keep us moving toward Christ-likeness. And that long list I read, you're in there somewhere. And it'll change from time to time. But there's got to be something in your life that is so intentional it keeps you moving in that pathway towards Christ. Um, we've got a W4 method here. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, you're a guest. Um, they're out there on the table. It's a really cool process of digging into God's Word. First step is, what does God say about who he is? This is the child that John is writing about. It's just simply getting to know who he is through his word. But then you have to ask yourself, so what's his will for my life? What is he wanting me to do with this principle that I just read? Where else in his word does this principle come up? So we start letting the word interpret the word. Together, these tell us how to grow in Christ-likeness. That's a young man. That's the youth who's pursuing a changed life. And then we get to the fathers. Last step, how will what I read change how I will walk? That's a father who is pursuing an intimate relationship and conforming their life to Christ. 
In a message two weeks ago, Dope made a couple of statements that were really on point. You'll remember these when I say them. The first one is, if your following of Christ is a daily verse download, you will never mature. He's right. Not enough. Second statement he made, which was really key, linger longer. Linger longer. We, we live in a microwave culture. Throw it in, press the button, get it out, move on. It's the culture we live in. Here's what I want you to think about in terms of growing in Christ-likeness. You had a campfire. You got to create a fire. You have to go find kindling and wood. You have to go find some dry grass. You got to click a couple of rocks together to create a flame. Once that smoke starts smoldering, you blow on it. Once that's ready, you move it over to the kindling. After a period of time, you have a fire and you can eat. That's the process. It's not microwave. It's lingering longer. It's sitting under God's word until it begins to change who you are. Very practically, it might mean you have to get up 30 minutes earlier. Oh my goodness. Or maybe at the end of the night, you turn off the entertainment 30 minutes sooner. If growing in Christ-likeness is intentional, you'll make those decisions. You'll do those things. Because he is more important than you. Start by simply asking, help me know more of you. Then listen. Get quiet. When you're asking, how can I know more of you, you're reading. When you're quiet, he speaks through his word. This is not some voice that we hear. This is God's word that the Holy, Holy Spirit impresses on our heart. And then don't forget the last step, obey. Put it into practice. Romans 12, 1 and 2, great passage, very familiar to many in the room. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. A good resource if you don't have a daily. Um, there's a guy named Oswald Chambers who writes utmost for his highest. I want you to listen to what he says here. It is because we have failed to realize that God requires intellectual vigor on the part of the saint that the devil gets hold on the stagnant mental life of so many. To be transformed by the renewing of our minds means the courageous lifting of all of our problems, individual, family, social, civic, into this spiritual domain and habitually working out a life of practical holiness there. It is not an easy task, but a gloriously difficult one, requiring the mightiest effort of our human nature, a task that lifts us into God, into thinking God's thoughts after him. That's the process, lingering longer. So as I'm starting to wrap up, I want to address quiet time. For a lot of people, quiet time is a check-it-off-the-list exercise. What would you have to do to change that into a relationship-building moment? You know, we have a quiet time. We say, oh, I need to pray. Well, I'm running behind. I'll do it in the car. We lay our head on the pillow and realize we never really prayed. That's our microwave culture. So we have to do things that get us into a position of hearing. Um, there's a gentleman in California in my, when I was a child just getting into the Word and he asked me one day, James, what'd you read? And so I told him, because I read like three chapters. And he said, well, that's good. What did you read? And so I gave him a description of it as best as I could. I'm sure it was somewhat sketchy, but I kind of repeated what I read. And he said, James, what did you read? And I looked at him with this puzzled look. I said, Cliff, what are you talking about? And he said, James, I think God would rather you read one verse and do something with it then read a lot of passages and think you did a good thing. And that's lingering longer. 
That's allowing God's word to just soak inside of us to the point that it changes us. Um, You've heard the term milk and meat. We've talked about this. The milk of the word is our necessary nourishment. Every single passage that you read in scripture is God's nourishment to us. It's our milk. But that same passage is also our meat. Young men and fathers get there. Because they can't leave with just the surface. They need to know the why behind the what. That doesn't happen in a microwave mentality. That happens in the slowing down process and submitting ourselves. That's where God can really begin to change our hearts. So as I close, last slide. You'll see here, are you a child? Are you a youth? Are you an adult? So I'll just ask the questions. Have you placed your faith and hope in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Welcome, child. It's great. You're in the family, forever family. Are you pursuing God every day through his word, intentionally submitting your will to be conformed to the image of Christ? And I would encourage you, press on, young man. Or are you the adult that is walking daily with their father and living life to hear, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. So what are you going to do? What will you do about it? Um, Earlier in my youth stage, as I was really pursuing Christ, um, the process of pursuing him began to weigh on me. And I got this in my mind that I wasn't doing enough. It's when God gave me the concept of it's not doing more, it's being more. And this same guy, Cliff, sat on a curb with me and he opened up Psalm 37, 23, and 24. And it says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Though he falls. You hear that? We're on a Christ-like journey and we will fall. But though he falls, God is not going to utterly cast you aside. Why? Because he holds you right here. He holds you right here in your palm. And he is always there. And that is a hope that we can not only trust in, but have confidence in. So, between you and the Lord, are you growing more, sinning less? Would someone who knows you really well affirm that? My wife is my best mirror and the one I do not want to look into (laughs) all the time because she tells me who I really am. Uh, James talked about that. We look in the mirror and walk away and we forget who we are. Do the work with the Lord. Let me pray.